Welcome listeners to another episode of The Extra Inch. My name is Windy and I'm joined by my sidekick and best friend Bardi. Hello Bardi. Hello Windy. And our tactics guy Nathan A. Clark. Hello Nathan. Hey hey. How you doing boys? Yeah I'm not too bad thank you. Not too bad. Good good good. Good. I think what we're going to do is talk a little bit about the Liverpool game, a little bit about the Crystal Palace game and then finish off with some um, thoughts on the stadium. Um, because obviously in this week we've we've experienced the stadium um, in a Premier League match for the first time and we were all there. Uh, so let's start off with Liverpool. We lost this game 2-1. Um, I feel rather, unfortunately, I thought... My, my broad th- feelings about this game were that we played really well and that Poch, for the first time, uh, outthought Jurgen Klopp. And I thought, we, I thought potentially we had the beating of them, but I thought we definitely deserved a draw. Um, Barney, let's start with you. What were your overall thoughts on this game and, and did anything stand out to you? Yeah, I mean, I was concerned after the first 15, 20 minutes, but there were still moments where I thought, even in that first half where we were under pressure and they were really exposing us down the wings, I thought we had enough kind of quality in us to get to still get something from the game. And um, I think perhaps Pochettino being up in the stands kind of worked to our benefit for once. But it's one of those games against a top team where it does kind of come down to those moments. And I just think in those key those key decision-making moments, they had the players who were a bit smarter and a little bit cleverer. And that's kind of what made us pay, I think, in the end. So you're not blaming Hugo for the defeat? Well, I, I did say our players should have been a bit smarter and a bit cleverer. But I... Hugo is obviously at fault and it was his error that led to the winning goal. But I thought the team played well. I'm being, you know, I'm being overly positive here. I thought we, I thought we played well. We deserved a point. And, there's, you know, they're unbeaten at home for, for a long time. And we gave it a good old go and it just didn't quite happen. And as, as, as always, it's the failings in our team, which is almost like a repetition. You could repeat, just play a, an extra inch from before Christmas and we'd be saying mm. the same the same faults, midfield, goalkeeper, fullbacks. But I think by using um, Rose and Vertonga at one point in the second half, we kind of made those weaknesses a bit of a strength. And we, we you know, essentially were a little bit unlucky. So let's build on that and talk about some of the, the tactical exchanges between the two teams. Nathan, we started off um, with, a, with a back three uh, or back five, depending on how you look at it. We got exposed with the first Liverpool goal where Robertson had the ball out wide and Trippier didn't know whether to go out to meet him or to hang back and cover the run of Mane. And I think Poch did a really good job of identifying that that was a big problem and fixing it. So talk us through what he did and whether you think it worked. So he moved to this sort of... um wonky formation that we have seen a couple of times before and we also saw against uh, Palace um, where I don't, it's very difficult to describe it's sort of a back three it's sort of a back four it's like uh, there's a full back there's like a defensive full back and a wing back on one side and then there's just a, a standard full back on the opposite side so Trippi is sort of playing a bit of a back and forth role the Tongan is sitting as a defensive left back and, and Rose is, is pelting up and down the wing um, I th- I think there's 
effectiveness in its unusualness in that teams aren't really sure how to shape up against a team that are sort of between formations and the asymmetry sort of opens up options as well. Um, one of the things it meant is that Sissoko received the ball in the half turn a lot and that was really effective. Where where Sissoko, as we've said, said many times, struggles is is in receiving the ball. But once he's on the ball, his ability to carry it um, is quite impressive and it, and it certainly was in this game. Yeah, I think, that's a, I think that's a very fair point. And essentially what we're saying is Pochettino got the best out of our players through a, a formation change, but also importantly nullified the threat from Liverpool. And that was... Very important because, like Vardy said, they they did have some some strong moments in the first half. I I slightly disagree that they were strong for the first fifteen minutes. I thought actually we kept them pretty quiet for the first ten, and it was only then that they started to impose their style upon us. And Robertson kept getting the ball at that point on, on the left, and um, you know even after they'd scored the opener, there was another opportunity where a similar cross came in, and we we nearly had the same problem all over again. But then Poch did react and. That's often been a criticism of him that he doesn't react until it's too late. This time he was really proactive. And Barley's mentioned there that he thinks it may have been due to the fact that he was watching from the stands. Do you buy into that, Nathan? Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I, I mean, I said before when he got the the, the touchline ban that there, there's sort of um, that's perhaps not the worst punishment to have. Um, and yeah, I, you know, having you, the key tactical mind at the club have a a view where he can more easily see the shape. Um, uh, and, and space and everything, you know, how could that not possibly be a positive? I totally uh, yeah. agree. Sorry. Yeah, I, I, no, I also think um, the positioning of Kane was very interested in this game because um, we never put Kane up against Van Dijk. So we kind of almost nullified, in a, in a weird kind of way, we nullified their best defender, that he had no direct opponent. So by Kane dropping deep in between the in between the Liverpool's midfield, which, as we know, isn't the most disciplined of midfield, and Van Dijk and Matip unwilling to kind of step into that territory, it did create a lot of space for Kane. And you could clearly see we were trying to use the, the speed of Lucas in the first half and then Sun when he came on, on the counter, uh, or trying to turn them quickly. So I thought Kane, he almost sacrificed his um, his danger, his, his like, um, you know, the, the dangerousness that he possesses around the goal area by um, by dropping deep, and he helped create the he helped create the equalising goal by dropping deep, winning a foul, and um, spreading the play. Kane's passing was used to great effect in this game, and it you know he, he always, in my opinion, has been an excellent passer, but it hasn't always been highlighted, and that's partly due to the fact that he's often played as a nine, whereas now he's more willing to come deep and take responsibility, or for the last two years really. Um, but he he used the ball fantastically, and like you say, I thought Lucas had a really really good game. Actually, I thought that was his best performance he's put in in a Spurs shirt. Um, the the thing that changed for me with Lucas in this match was his first touch was really neat. Often I find that it's a bit unpredictable. Sometimes it bounces off him and he can't hold the ball up. This time I felt he was really strong with his back to goal, and he was often holding the ball up and then you know using other players to allow him to to turn and then run at the Liverpool defence, and that was that was incredibly useful. Um, what did you make of Lucas's performance, Nathan? <laughs> I was nowhere near as positive right. as you. Okay. Um, um, that I, I think I'm going to go back and watch this game at some point um, because for, for tactically to sort of look at the the granular details and maybe I'll keep an eye out for for re-examining um, how I thought Lucas played in this game. But um, I mean, generally, I'm not Lucas's biggest fan. No, I'm not either, and I think I still think long term. 
we'll, we'll just take any offer. You know, we'll take if an offer comes in of over twenty million, we'll take it. I honestly think that. I don't think he's going to be a, a Spurs player for a long time. But I thought he did have his use in this game, and I, I kind of appreciated his performance for the first time in quite some time. Um, I, I, think I, also... I, Sorry, I would just like to say that I have um, zero problem with Lucas. I think his goals to game ratio isn't too bad. He scores goals. He offers us um, a threat. He can play multiple roles. His injury record is fine. And there are other forward players who are less reliable who I would happily get rid of first. Side out at the middle there. <laughs> it's um, unfortunately in, in a period where we've had an increasing amount of injuries and stresses in other areas of the team. When you're looking for your squad to, to be there and be available, he continues to not be available and this is this is nothing to do with Lamella as a player as a person or anything like that but physically he's unable to be a reliable option and as a squad player you know you basically want them to be available when others aren't and he never is yeah I, I, I find it it's very difficult to argue with that point um it's, it's spot on really I, I really like Lamella as a player but we can't just carry someone who's just constantly injured no. um, ultimately um we're going to have to talk about Larissa, I think. But before we do, let's just quickly talk about our missed chances. So firstly, the Ericsson chance, which has been oft overlooked in post-game analysis. Now, I think an informed Ericsson probably takes a touch here and then probably buries the chance. Bardi, what did you make of Ericsson's missed opportunity? Um, I think it's, it's, it's a difficult one to blame him. I think had he taken a touch, he probably might have won a penalty. Robertson had definitely committed to the block and he might have been able to win a clever penalty and maybe get Robertson sent off. And then maybe he could have chipped it or done something differently. But I think I think it's unfair to um, to blame him for that. He was running onto that at speed. Robertson was coming at speed. So I, I don't think you can blame him really for that for that opportunity. Fair enough, and I, I'm kind of using that as a as an in to, to launch an Ericsson conversation when we talk about the Crystal Palace game. But before we do that, um, Sissoko's chance was the next big one. Um, so a lot's been made of Virgil van Dijk's defending on this opportunity, and I think there's two well, there's two or three factors here. So firstly, there's the, the fact that van Dijk has essentially uh, allowed Sissoko to take the shot, which you could argue is is good defending. He, he sort of knew that Son was more dangerous in front of goal, and Sissoko had less chance of scoring, so he made that judgment call in his head. The other th- the other factors to take into account, though, I think Sissoko's touches weren't great. He didn't. He, he probably should have carried the ball slightly wider. Um, and also, I think Son's run wasn't the best either, and that kind of helped to Van Dijk a little. Um, ultimately, Sissoko's shot was awful, and he should have done better. Like I, I, I think he probably should have tried to pass it into the corner, and he would have scored rather than trying to go for power. Um, but Nathan, what, what did you make of that opportunity? Was there anything that you think could have gone differently there? I think you make a good point with Sun's run. I think he could have gone wider. I think he could have slowed, changed, or or increased his speed, or d- generally done more. I understand that in the majority of cases, he just makes the direct run. And it's not Sissoko and he gets found or the other player is able to work the opportunity for himself. Um, but in those circumstances, Sun probably could have done more. And I think that's probably the most undiscussed facet of the of this piece of play. So I think that you make a good point there. Um, but yeah, I think Van Dijk is rightfully getting um, 
highly praised for this because he he maintains pressure on the passing option and he maintains enough pressure on the shot option um that he's essentially able to foil both at the same time and that is incredibly good defending Mm. he is magnificent it's actually i i found that watching that whole um chance back i did find it really interesting from a number of not just because i you know it's almost cathartic in in some ways, like just watching it over and over again, thinking, what was he doing? But it's a fascinating insight into the psychology of being a defender um, against, you know, Son having to make that split second decision. How do I handle the situation? Like you say, if Kane's got the ball there or if Delhi's got the ball there and charging forward, he probably would have done exactly the same thing and been found. But he, he needs to remember that Sissoko's not got that kind of poise and vision in the final third and won't behave in the same way. I really, I, I found it interesting. Um, but let's talk about Hugo Lloris. Um, Nathan, I've seen some of your tweets on this and I, I found the takes very interesting. So do you want to explain where you are with Lloris at the moment? Essentially what I tweeted is that um, you can acknowledge the issues that he's having, the mistakes he's making, the fact that he's generally probably dropped off over the last sort of three, four years um, and that he, he does have these... Um, sort of semi-regular occurrences of of mistakes in big games. And if you look at that player, it's a very frustrating experience for Spurs Spurs fans. Um, But he's still probably a net positive on on an average to good Premier League keeper. I think we forget um, his his general shot-stopping ability and how that compares to just an average keeper. He's not a bad play. Again, he is frustrating to experience because we're aware of this drop-off and we're aware of the way he can cost us in big games and that's when it hurts the most. But I, I still think that he's he's still pretty good. So you currently are happy to stick with Luis for next season? Apart from anything else, um, as we've mentioned many times, we have bigger priorities. I think if the, if our squad was in a better place you know we can maybe look at the goalkeeper but i think he's sort of fourth or fifth priority at the moment and that's not something that you want to be getting done in a single summer and buddy how about you are you thinking along similar lines um i said a while ago that i've i've been unhappy with um Lloris. i think it was it was on the exchange we were talking about areas to improve and um i've been concerned about him and his and his drop off he still makes, as Nathan says, he makes good saves and um, point-winning saves, but he he is making fundamental errors now, which is costing us games, um, sending offs, rash decisions. And when a goalkeeper starts just mishandling the football, um, this isn't a um, sweeping error or a, fo- a technical footballing error. This is a fundamental flaw where he's unable to catch a pretty soft header as he hits the ground for me that's a sign that he's that he's probably dead as a top class goalkeeper but i don't think we're able to go out and buy a a hugo Lloris. like when we went out and bought the french number one captain i don't think we're able to do that now we'd either have to take a gamble on a young goalkeeper and then allow them allow him the opportunities to make these mistakes in first team football which is a very dangerous place to be so personally, I don't think we'll replace him. I think we'll give him another go. And then hopefully our scouts find someone young who we can give proper rotation to in the cups and stop wasting our time with Vorm and um, Gazaniga. Find a, a proper real understudy who um, can then grow into becoming our number one because we're not going to sign an Oblak or go out and buy Lafont from Fiorentina. That kind of stuff's not going to happen. 
really interesting to get your thoughts. I'm I'm sort of um, I'm sort of agreeing with both of you. I think there in that I I don't have faith in him anymore. Um, and I, I I therefore if I don't have faith in him, I'm sort of thinking perhaps the defence don't. But like Nathan says, there are bigger fish to fry in our squad. We have to fix the central midfield issue. We have to fix the, fix the fullback issue. And so Lloris is prior, the, the issue of fixing the goalkeeper is down the priority list. Yeah. Do you know what would be excellent is to have a 18, 19 year old academy product who could play. But I don't think from, from what you've spoken about, I don't think we've got anything. I mean, I can't remember the last um, academy product goalkeeper we created. Maybe who was the, um, who's the Scottish guy? Archer. Button, Ian yeah. Walker. I mean, the, the the thing is, Archer and Button are both playing at a good level, but they're not Premier League goalkeepers, and they're certainly not top four goalkeepers. Actually, Button's actually at Southampton now, I think, so he technically is a Premier League goalkeeper, mm. um, but he's not playing regularly for a, a Premier League team. Um, Ian Walker I, was he the last goalkeeper we produced? God. But the other one we kind of trained up from a teenager now works in the financial industry. Who was the, that? Espen Bardson. Oh yeah, <laughs> quit football. So, you know, it's so, now a so we have we have got some reasonable young goalkeepers. We've got Brandon Austin and Jonathan Deby, who who both look good. But until they've been out on loan and had opportunities to play, we just don't know. It's it's so different. The mentality of of goalkeeping at, at various levels is so different, and we need to test them to to know how how good they are. And the, um, the price the price of goalkeepers now is ridiculous. Oh, yeah, Jordan yeah, Pickford, yeah. thirty million. Allison, eighty million. They are like strikers now. They're that expensive. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. So let's move on to talk a little bit about a win. Uh, it's Before the Palace game, we were on our worst run for seven years, which I find sort of quite staggering, to be honest. It felt bad, but not that bad. Um, but we came through this match unscathed and we actually put in a fairly, on the whole, fairly controlled performance. Um, again, there were some interesting tactical decisions made by Pochettino. So he played Danny Rose on the left of what was a sort of 4-2-3-1-ish. Um, and actually, it, I had a really good interaction on Twitter uh, where I sort of... I sort I had my mind changed on a point, which was it's quite quite a rare, a rare and nice thing. So I, I, I tweeted post-match that um, I thought Rose was really, really bad. Um, and that was based on the fact that he just constantly gave the ball away. So for context, Rose played 65, 66 minutes, something like that. And he lost possession 32 times, which is staggeringly high and pretty much double anyone else in the, um, in the team on the day. But uh, Greg Jenner, amongst other people, said... But the thing Rose did was he pushed Aaron Wambasaka back and he caused his simply his presence and his thrust and his front footedness uh, caused Crystal Palace to be more reserved on that side. And I think that's a good point. And I, I hadn't thought of it in that way. And yeah, it totally changed my view. Um, Nathan, what did you make of the team shape in general? And did you feel like it worked against Palace's narrow 4-3-3? So I had it down more as the sort of the wonky shape we were discussing earlier against Liverpool is sort of, yeah, between a 4-2-3-1, 
and um, a 3-4-3 where um, Rose played this left wing back slash winger role and, and Trippier got up and down on the right a little bit, more like a classic fullback. Um, and then uh, Ericsson and Son sort of playing quite inside, but neither is the number 10. So, uh, yeah, I, I I agree with, with essentially Greg's uh, take there in that Rose wasn't hugely productive and he did lose the ball a lot but he gave us that width on the on on that side um which opened up the middle um for us to play through there i thought um ben davis get, had a really solid game as well um and that role that sort of slightly more reserved role suited him really nicely and it's kind of it's made me think a little bit more about whether davis should stay and, and remain a squad player because he does have the ability to play on the left side of a back three as well as left back and I think Davis is not a spectacular player by any stretch but he's pretty much a solid defender and he, he's quite switched on defensively and I appreciated his performance in this match. Yeah I also quite liked the the combination between Rose and Davies it was very kind of old school 4-4-2 left wing kind of dovetailing between the two of them um, it also kept Wambasaka quiet who is I, I've not been a huge admirer of his but I saw him play live for the first time and I thought he was excellent and um, I thought that also kept him very quiet and stopped him from rampaging down the down the wing if Hodgson had kind of ordered that. Um, yeah, and I was quite happy with Rose. I think he's a bit loose in the challenge every now. He's a bit loose with his touch every now and then, but he's he gives a fully committed performance each time he plays. He goes in for tackles. He tries to get involved as much as he can. He did have that kind of one glorious opportunity in the first half where. I don't know whether Spurs had it written into all their contracts that Kane had to score the first goal. But instead, <laughs> yeah, instead of shooting, he tried to pass it inexplicably. But um, I thought he had a, I thought his game was fine. How about you, Nathan? Uh, yeah, uh, Davies is sort of the archetypal second-choice left-back, sort of a safe defensive option. Um, can sort of play centre-back as well. Or he can play centre-back as well, but you, you wouldn't. Um, wanting to be starting there regularly and yeah I think essentially he played a, the role of a defensive fullback and that played into his hands a lot because he has a lot less ground to cover I think that he can operate quite well in the final third in terms of his um, sort of fairly creative passing that where he struggles is is getting back and forth the whole match and when Rose is essentially doing his attacking job for him um, he can he can do a really good job in a much smaller area. Um, I did feel that between them, there were a couple of times where they weren't sure who should be picking up sort of a second ball because they're both, you know, uh, mentally they're both left back. So they, they sort of got, there was a little bit of confusion between them, but um, yeah, on the whole, the shape really worked Uh, on the, on the, the Kane getting the first goal thing. I did think there was a bit of that, but I also thought there was a bit of everyone wanted the first goal for themselves too. So it was either either I'm going to score or I'm going to set Harry Kane up. But I'm definitely not going to set up Delhi. I'm definitely not going to set up Ericsson. I'm definitely not going to set up Sun. And I think there was a we had a sort of a bit of a problem with that until the first goal, at least. So the other key players on the day, um, I, I personally thought Delhi had a really solid game in midfield. Again, I've been very impressed with him in that deeper role, as I always am yeah. when he plays there. Um, Sissoko notably uh, had a strong performance and Nathan you were very big on his his outing yeah again he he carried the ball really well Um, we were able to get to him on the half turn so that he wasn't receiving under pressure much Um, he carried it um, quite some distance repeatedly and he also won the ball a lot um, which essentially that's all you want that's what we want 
that's what Pochettino wants from his central midfielder, a ball winner who can carry the ball forward. Um, and he fulfilled that well, you know, as well as you could expect him to. And the player that I thought was um, underrated in this match was Christian Eriksen, who has had a considerable rough patch, to say the least. Um, I mean, you can put that down to fatigue, confidence, perhaps already thinking of his future after the end of the season. Uh, but I thought he kind of showed signs of coming back to something like his best form in this match. Buddy, what did you make of Ericsson's performance here? Um, I've been highly critical of Ericsson and I, I think he's still, he, he's still, he's, he's almost, sometimes he underplays what he's doing and other times he's, he's trying to overplay, he's trying to be too clever. Um, he's definitely bereft of confidence because there was a few opportunities in the first half where the ball was looped over to him. He had his back to goal and had he been feeling a bit more confident, I think he would have taken the ball, controlled it and then Put, tucked it away quickly within one or two touches where instead he kind of doubted himself um, second half he was definitely better he he's, he got his goal he he set up Sun so even though he's not actually playing well he's still statistically getting his assists and creating things for the team he's he's miles off where he can be as a player but he's, he's doing okay I mean we don't have anyone else to put in there in that position so it's not like I reckon we should drop him but hopefully now he's he'll start to find a bit of rhythm because we we desperately need him he's the the player that makes us really tick on um on Delhi I liked him deeper I think he was quite assured but I still think the brilliant thing about Delhi is the it's it's his one touch passing it's his kind of linking in other players and the closer he physically is to the opposition goal, the more effective he is, the more dangerous he is. Delhi facing the goal in his own half with the ball, it's fine. But I don't think he has the, the range of passing and he doesn't like switching onto his left foot and spreading the play that way either. So I think deeper we kind of limit his effectiveness, but we had no other option. And I think once Winks came on, we actually saw what it's like to have a proper centre midfielder there. And I think through all of this, for me, Winks has been like one of our most improved players this season. He stepped onto the pitch and all of a sudden we had a proper central midfield presence there, which is he's, he is a better kind of holding central midfielder than Delhi than Delhi ever will be. Yeah, I, pro- I think I pretty much agree with that. I think Delhi is such a good player that he could probably play anywhere, but he's at his best when he's in the final third, as you say, and that's um, that's where we need him to be. Um, Ericsson I definitely feel is on the, on the steps back in the right direction. Um, he came away with uh, five chances created. He had six shots, only got two on target. So there's, like you say, there are issues with confidence there. But I think hopefully, you know, having created one from running the ball back and, and feeding Son and then scoring one by sort of latching onto that Kane opportunity, he, he hopefully will, um, that will stand him in good stead and, and he might start feeling a little better. We really need him to perform in these last few weeks if we're going to finish top four because, like you say, he's so vital. And Nathan, any final thoughts on the Palace game? Uh, I'll, I'll I'll get in on an Ericsson a bit there. I think that his um his run of form has been dramatically overplayed as to how bad it's been. Um, I do think there's been a drop off, but um, as ever with Ericsson, I think there are tactical reasons. I think it's no wonder that um we're talking about him having a good game after we've just praised our central midfielders. And again, there's such a huge relationship there is that Ericsson thrives when he can um sort of receive a gentle pass in dangerous areas. Um, and and that's what he, he got. And if he was an even better player than he was, he would find a way to um, utilize his attacking ability in circumstances that don't favor him. So you can, there is a legitimate criticism there. Um, 
but a player like that is incredibly rare. I think if you look at Ericsson's um, sort of contemporaries, which is Ozil and, and David Silva, they're really not dissimilar. Um, Isco, again, it's the same kind of stuff where they all want the right circumstances. And when they have those circumstances, they can make things happen. So, and I think that's that's what we saw a little more of uh, against Palace. Yeah, I, I think that's a very, very fair point. And uh, for that reason, I think if Ericsson were to move, I think he would look an absolute star in a team with an outstanding central yeah. midfield behind him. Um, and he's just going to go to the next level. Um, let's talk a bit about the stadium then. So this was our first experience of uh, being in the stadium for a Premier League game. We'd all been there um, previously. So Bardi went to the Legends match. Nathan and I both went to the Under-18 match. Um, Bardi, let's go with you. How did you How did you find the stadium? What were your overall thoughts um, overall, I was positive about it. I've um, I've endured Wembley for a good season and a half, and I've not enjoyed I've enjoyed moments of the football, but I haven't enjoyed the experience of going to the game and everything else that surrounds Wembley. So immediately for me, I was already on a positive going back to going back to White Hart Lane. Um, for me, Wembley's half an hour door to door, so you know it's it makes my life more difficult to get to White Hart Lane, but. I go to the football to watch Tottenham and I want to watch Tottenham at home. I think the stadium is beautiful. I like the sound that echoes around it. I really enjoy my seat. I think there's a lot of positive things to be taken from it. There are one or two teething issues where people have kind of been displaced and everything else like that, which affected the atmosphere. But I also think um, I've seen some comments, people complaining about how it felt. I think that game was so stressful. We'd been on such a bad run. We were so desperate not to lose. And the narrative that would have come along had we lost that game. So I think the stress and everything else played a part in in the atmosphere. And I think against City on Tuesday, I think we'll see a much different stadium and a much more relaxed and positive feel to it. There's definitely teething issues with transport, with the bars and everything else. But overall, I have to say it was a positive experience and I can't wait to go back. That's excellent. How about you, Nathan? How did you find it? I I did have some trouble with with the transport. I think that the generally the infrastructure um, just it doesn't hold up at the moment. And I don't know what they might be able to do if they can sort of dramatically um, extend the overground station in White Hart Lane, especially now that they've renamed it. Um, so I sprained my ankle a couple of weeks back. Um, so I was hobbling around on a cane. Um, like, it's not bad. And like, obviously, I chose to buy a ticket. So I knew the risks I was getting myself into. Um, but I back at the old White Hart Lane, I used to get the train to Seven Sisters and changed on the overground from Seven Sisters to White Hart Lane. And that wasn't an option for me because there was no sort of... Um, there was no real stewarding at Seven Sisters. So there was just a sort of a push and a shove and a queue of 100 people for each um, set of doors to get on the, the overground train. And that wasn't an option for me, which meant I hobbled the sort of, I don't know, what is it a mile between Seven Sisters and the stadium um, on my jodgy ankle, which wasn't great. Um, but again, like I knew what I was getting into, so I'm, I'm not too upset about that. I think more long term, I went with my dad, who's now in his 60s and he's got dodgy knees. And I'm, I'm a little worried for him making that journey on the regular. And also um, his season ticket, the only season ticket he, that was available and he could afford is in Park Lane. So he's standing the full match. And again, you know, he knew what he was getting into when he got that. He knew it was going to be a standing ticket. Um, it's just a it's just a little bit of a worry um, in that regard. Um I still managed to arrive in time to catch the opening ceremony. Um, here's the thing with that. I I cried. Um, 
And yet at the same time, I also thought it was kind of naff. I think that I would have cried if there was no opening ceremony and all that happened was that there was 60,000 Spurs fans in the stadium singing the team in. Um, I think it was more about the occasion and the way than the way that the, the club handled it. Um, and I would like, to, I, I think the atmosphere may have been better if instead of the opening ceremony, we were just given room to sing because... And this is the thing that isn't particular to this game. Sorry, I'm going off a bit and rant now. Where we have this, and maybe it's going to be different now, but we have this long intro where we blast various different musics and various different uh, intros and, and little talks about the team um, sort of for 15, 20 minutes before the teams come out. And it gives us no room to get an atmosphere going before kickoff. And there were these few breaks in between segments, in between singing, where the Spurs fans tried to get a song going and then the the music by the way those speakers are incredibly high quality as sort of the resident sound tech I've got to come in at how good the sound tech uh is in the stadium um but yeah I I was a little disappointed with that yeah I'd like to agree totally with what Nathan said there I think um the showing of adverts of Lucas cooking a um a pad thai yeah, or whatever it was kind of totally drowned out any natural atmosphere building. I think the music on the PA system should should just be turned off because it's un it's unnecessary. But I think they were showing a lot of the kind of community development and outreach programs that they had been doing. So hopefully that was just a sure. one off. But yeah, the sound system is insane. It's too loud. They someone needs to um, pull the plug on it because it does and allow any they want organic support then turn the music off nice well it, it sounds like you both had a good time i i i had a slightly different experience um but that's partly through my own doing so i'm not going to talk about it um don't drive the stadium, to tottenham the stadium looks absolutely beautiful that's you know it really does so the key things i think are the stadium looks beautiful it's still in tottenham um and people will eventually you know make their connections and and get used to the the acoustics and it will be absolutely brilliant going forward um like Barley said there are some some slight teething problems which they they need yeah. to address they've got the rest of the season to address that and then I think next season it's just going to be awesome and you know it's going to be a great destination um let's leave it there chaps it's been good chatting to you uh let's do it again soon hopefully after another win it's the fight in it's the fight in It's the fighting. Clock! Oh, that was really interesting, mate, yeah.